We all know that I love making and recording my own podcast. Loudmouth is my heart and soul. But what's even more fun is that it's easy to do. And guess what? (laughs) You can do one too. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can make money from it with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast right there in one place for free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hi guys and welcome back to Loudmouth, the show about everything and nothing all at once. I'm your host Madison Hadler here on this beautiful Monday because I'm actually recording early because I am trying to get it done earlier so that I don't stress myself out like I normally do, you know, doing those things for your future self, just like I talked about in my last video or video. (laughs) Who do I think I am? podcast. So I hope that you guys are having a good start to your week or a good middle of your week when you're listening to this. Um, Just the other day I was talking, well not talking, I tweeted and posted about it on Instagram about how I'm always so shocked when I'm editing through my videos how loud I am and then I'm like yeah that's the whole point. So today I'm trying to do a little more of a subtle voice One, because my roommates are here and Morgan is working from home, but also because I'm trying to make it a little bit easier on editing and trying not to break the soundboard, basically. But today I am so excited because I have been sitting on this podcast for a little bit. I recorded it back in December, but I'm glad I waited and I'm glad that I have the new year kind of motivation um, to get me going to post this episode because it deserves all the glory. Um, Last year, I had a goal of reading 12 books and I got a library card because one, I love the library. It's my favorite place, one of my favorite places, but also um, to just get books and try to get back into reading for fun Um, because I think it helps with the podcast. It helps gives me topics, everything like that. So got a library card and one of the first books that I checked out from the library was this book called The Ungrateful Refugee and it was a book about an Iranian um, American woman and her journey as a refugee from when she was young and it talks about you know the complicated relationship she had with America and the complicated relationship she had with her old culture and being in immigrant and a refugee and everything like that and she weaves it in with other people's stories as well and the same refugee kind of experience but she tells all these different perspectives and she talks about storytelling she tells it through the five stages of displacement or what she calls the five stages of displacement which she talks about a little later in the episode but it was so good and I decided you know what Madison you should just reach out to her because it would be so cool to have her on loudmouth and she responded back. It took us a couple months to actually get to the point of recording. So that was fun though. And it was such a good experience. And I really love how she talks. Um, so the author is Dina Nieri. And she's an Iranian American woman who has been writing since she was young. And she kind of talks about in this episode her different 
um, experiences with the craft because she's written nonfiction and fiction. She's been an essayist and now she is kind of getting into playwriting. And so it's so fun to hear about how she how she uses her voice um, through her craft and is able to use her craft to amplify her story and amplify the activism and the change that needs to be created around the refugee experience, about how we talk about refugees, about what we quote unquote like expect from refugees and everything like that so our conversation is so fun and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to her and obviously she speaks super eloquently because she's a writer so I was just so entranced by every word so I hope you guys enjoy and learn a little bit more about Dina's experience and everything like that Hello. I like the name of your podcast. I like the idea of loudmouth and loudmouthness. Well, I'm Dina Nayeri. I'm a writer of fiction and nonfiction, most recently of The Ungrateful Refugee, which is a book of creative nonfiction about, you know, the the arc of the refugee life and experience. Yeah. So when did you start writing? Well, this was a while ago. I, in my 20s, I actually kind of pursued a business career. I was this uh, very insecure immigrant kid who wanted security, you know, and I wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted to feel safe and I didn't, I had gone through the whole refugee experience. I didn't want to have, you know, um, money problems again. So I went into the business world and I very quickly found that I was really unhappy there because I didn't have a voice. I wasn't doing anything important. I didn't feel like I was using my talents or doing anything for the world. And so, um, I, you know, I come from a very creative family. And even though we had had this huge disruption by, you know, becoming displaced, and moving to the West, there was still this long history of creativity and writing and storytelling. And so I started thinking about writing in my 20s. And I started to just with absolutely no knowledge and no understanding and the wrong degrees too. I had like studied the wrong things. I'd toiled so hard to get into these great universities in the US and had studied the wrong things. Can you imagine the scare yeah. like factor there? <laughs> yeah. Like it's like you've you've just you 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 did it, you know, this like huge, huge like American dream story where you're trying so hard. I mean, I have this this essay that I wrote, which I always encourage people to read because it's well, it's hilarious, but it's also <laughs> just so it, it shows who I am. And I even recorded it on audio, um, uh, you know, for The Guardian. It's a Guardian long read about how mm-hmm. I became obsessed with Taekwondo mm-hmm. and how I used Taekwondo to try to like win a national championship and then yes. get into Harvard. So imagine like the kid who did all of that mm-hmm. to get into, and I got into Princeton and I went there and I went to Harvard too afterwards. And then afterwards realized I had studied all the wrong things. <laughs> like the day of having to uh, confess that to myself was kind of brutal. It was a brutal day. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I, yeah, but then I started kind of from the beginning, I started mm-hmm. reading and, and, and writing and kind of learning about the industry, learning about how to become a better writer and how to like build up the skill that I, I felt like I had the talent for, but didn't yet understand the craft. And, and so, and that took years. Um, so I, I published my first novel years after that. And then I went and got an MFA at Iowa. And then I published another novel. And, and this Ungrateful Refugee was my third book. And it is my first nonfiction book. Yes. And it, yeah, so it comes like a good 
like more than a decade after that initial decision to publish. Mm -hmm. That's so crazy because yeah, I remember in your book, you talk about this like dream of wanting to get into Harvard and how yeah. it was like this goal of yours and like <laughs> you wouldn't stop at anything. And then yeah, getting all the degrees and coming out of it and being like, oops. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like when you're young, you think of those things in a different way from what, the, I mean, gosh, you miss out on how much like of what a gift certain things are mm -hmm. and you, and, and also like why they're a gift. Like, so I knew, for example, that a place at a university like that was a huge gift and at any American university, just an American education is such a big deal. But I didn't realize then that it's because of the things you get to study and the things that you get to learn and the people you surround yourself with and really getting to explore your passions. I thought of it as more like, well, you know, you get the stamp. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people, it wasn't just people who were displaced like me or traumatized like me or vulnerable like me. It was people who were 18 like me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who all who all thought that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and uh and, and and so I think like uh, there's a lot of people with this experience that, oh gosh, college was lost on me, or all of that privilege was lost on me because I was too young to appreciate it. And you've been going to school for you know so many years, and then you're just like, okay, this is another, this is another stamp on my record. Like, okay, exactly. I graduated college. Like, here's another yeah. little sticker that's exactly so the younger. Grateful Refugee was your first nonfiction book. Yeah. When did you decide to kind of make that shift into writing a nonfiction book? What kind of like urged you to do that? Yeah. So for me, um, you know, fiction was always a safe space. And the reason that it was safe is because it was a chance to withdraw into the imagination and to craft something, you know, really well. And it came from the safety of my imagination. It was fed by my life. So while I was using a lot of detail from my life, I always had the veil of fiction to hide behind to say, mm -hmm. you know, well, this isn't my story. Of course, this is stories that I made up. Um, and I draw from my experience just as all professional writers do, mm -hmm. but you know, it's crafted and it's, 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 it's created and it's a piece of art. And I, I, um, in that sense, I, I, I take responsibility for it in a different way. I mm -hmm. just take responsibility in that my imagination created this and that it's fed by my experiences, but not that I lived this. Do you know what I mean? And I mm -hmm. think that's this feeling of safety. And it's very possible to feel completely fulfilled, I think, writing in that way and feel like you are using your experiences to give some insight into a particular life to the world. Mm -hmm. But for me at that particular moment in 2015, um, there, there was like a moment where it felt like not enough, where I wanted to speak to the world as me, mm -hmm. um, not just to talk about my own experiences and to tell my own story, but also to say in an essayistic way, you know, like in a rhetorical way, this is what I think is wrong with the world. And this is the way I'd like us to think about the world. And I think to be able to step out of narrative right? And into rhetoric. Let's think about these ideas instead of being immersed in a story. I mean, I think that's something that you can do in creative nonfiction in a way that is really interesting to me. And it's yeah. really exciting. And, and it, it, there's kind of a fluidity to where you can take the narrative. Whereas like, say, if I was writing a novel about it, I would have to stay in the novel. All the novels, I mean, most of the novels I've read that really kind of break that, those narrative rules, I think mm -hmm. it's just a high bar for them to be satisfying. Yeah. You can kind of tell it in like a certain way, because it's your story that you're yeah. sharing. And yeah. I think it's just a different form, you okay. know, and, and there are different rules and there's different, and there's different restrictions too. You know, you can't event yeah. events yeah. out of nowhere. You yes. know? And, so, <laughs> and so I think like, they just have their own different craft rules. And, and I think like for that moment, mm -hmm. 
the right thing for me was nonfiction. And it was because the world was suddenly changing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you had, we had the Trump election. Mm-hmm. We had the, uh, this was like 2015, 16. So we had the Brexit vote and I had just moved to the UK. And these are just these two kind of hugely populist events yeah. fueled by xenophobia and yeah. a fear of the unknown. And, and, and I had felt for like a decade or more so comfortable in my Americanness. I had worked mm-hmm. so hard to become American and to be assimilated. And then suddenly the world just felt like it took away its welcome. At the at that exact moment, I had a baby, you know, my first kid. And yeah. just becoming a, a mother, I was suddenly yeah. afraid. You know, it was just this like skinlessness in that mm-hmm. moment. Like suddenly everything that I took for granted is not for granted anymore, mm-hmm. you know? So I felt like I needed to say something and I yeah. needed to say it as me. Because you kind of talked about like in the essay kind of style of it and bringing in other stories. So what kind of like... And, inspired you to bring in other people's stories and like tie them into your own and kind of like throughout the book yeah that's a great question I think it has to do with the same set of events because well first of all there was this kind of sudden crisis in the world the refugee crisis which wasn't new I mean the Mm -hmm. refugees have been uh, the world has created refugees for you know hundreds of years and and um and, and longer suddenly the world that I knew was paying attention to this issue that I knew about since I was a kid, because I yep. knew what a refugee was from the moment I became one. When yes. I was like, it's not like people in my school knew what a refugee was. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't. And now suddenly the world knew what it, what they were. Kids in schools knew what they were. They were talking about it. And, um, and so, and I was interested to know how the, um, experience of refugees today differed from my own. Like, how is this world different from that world? Mm-hmm. But so, and that was kind of an intellectual interest, but more than that, it was kind of back to this thing of when I became a mother, because I think one thing that happens when you become a parent is that you suddenly feel a stake in the world beyond your life. I mean, it's, it's unfair to say parent when you have a vested interest in the life of a child, you know, mm-hmm. like you, if you love a child, you're suddenly interested in the world beyond your own. Mm-hmm. And then you also become really much more interested in other people's stories you stop looking inward all the time you want to look outward like what kind of lives are they living what kind of lives are we giving to the people in this world who are vulnerable like what do we owe to our fellow man mm-hmm. are we thinking about these things is the world just haphazardly created you know yeah. like is society just haphazardly like just depending on people's self-interest and who has the most power or or is there some way of like thinking about this um in terms of like fairness and justice and and you know human rights and human decency and 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 all of those things like I just became interested in that sort of depth in the lives of other people at the moment of becoming a parent and, and for me it was really necessary to go to the camps and to go and find other refugees and to talk to them and to share our stories and to share mine and get theirs and to, to just really like understand how is this changed in the last yeah. 30 years and what are you experiencing and and does it do I have anything to offer in terms of the, because I lived the same thing 30 years ago mm-hmm. um, I think that's the really awesome thing about your book is that it does it weaves in these stories of other people's lives into yeah. your own and it shows yeah. like the similarities but also how different every situation can be yeah. for these people I mean, it's a common arc, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we lived, it, we had the same kind of arc, but I think it, it's it's much more interesting to look at it from the for, in other people's stories too, just because, like, it isn't about one person. This is 
this is so many people living mm-hmm. such similar stories, which is why it was so important to me to, to choose stories that weren't absolutely outrageous, mm-hmm. you know, that were very typical, you know, mm-hmm. things that were happening again and again and again and again. I just, I think another thing about it was that it was also really important for me because there was something that I could add here and um, because uh, these people tell their stories every single day but they don't necessarily tell them in the way that the western listener wants to hear and I think this is a huge problem it's not a problem of language it's a problem of culture mm-hmm. right you have people coming in with these harrowing stories and they're used to telling it a particular way the eastern way or, or you know their own cult- cultural kind of storytelling way and um though that's not always convincing to the western asylum officer to the western local community to the people who offer the help to the people who are going to be their neighbors and and so like for me it felt like I had something that I could offer here you know I had a skill I had learned I've been educated in western storytelling but I still understood the story from a perspective of an Iranian yeah so so I, I just felt like I had something to offer and these people were so generous with just like I had so many cups of tea. I mean, they just, just kept, <laughs> I mean, we're in a refugee camp. They kept yeah. pouring me tea and, and we sat down for hours and they were so generously giving me their story. So I felt this obligation to render those stories in a way that is moving to the Western audience. Right? Yes. And because I'm sure they felt way more comfortable sharing their story and sharing their experience in the real way that it, yeah. in the real way they felt it happened to you because you understand in that way. Well, well, and not only well, not only that exactly, exactly. So they were mm-hmm. comfortable telling it in their own way mm-hmm. and style, but also, you know, there was language in this case. They could tell the story in Farsi. You know, mm-hmm. I could sit down yes. and 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 just listen to the story in Farsi, and and it was fun because I had this like terrible American accent now, so they could make <laughs> fun of me a little bit, and you know, like or I'd like forgotten a word. I would ask yeah. what that means, and then they would laugh, and somehow, somehow, it just it just became just so very. Um, friendly and loving and and you know I was not one of their rescuers you know because mm-hmm. there's all of this questions of like dignity and embarrassment and shame in front of the volunteer workers in front of the rescuers and um, I was just another Iranian who barely you know who had forgotten words that she should definitely not have forgotten <laughs> and 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 so you know there was this quick like equalizing mm-hmm. um and, 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 you know, camaraderie. And so when they shared their stories that way, and then I was able to record their stories and take them home and, and turn them into something that might, might move a Western listener who might have been bored if they were sitting there because the stories are often long, you know, yeah. and full of drama. <laughs> drama. Then I think that felt like something worthwhile to do. Whenever you were retelling the stories, what was it like, like trying to figure out how to like write these so that the Western world could listen, understand yeah. better? What kind of was that process like for you? Was it nerve wracking? I think it was natural because okay. the thing is that I am so used to telling stories mm-hmm. in the Western way. So like, as I was listening, I was even like catching on to moments where, you know, I was immersed in this story, but I'd be like, oh my God, okay, that's the image I'm going to start with. Or, mm-hmm. oh, interesting. You were going to have to come back around to this or that. And I think that was just the result of, you know, the 10 years or more of like Writing professional that. storytelling. Yeah, exactly. But also just a lifetime of being a storytelling person. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing that really naturally, but I think what I was concerned with when I was sitting down to write was, okay, am I getting, am I getting the details, right? Mm-hmm. There's some things I need to verify. Memory is not always honest mm-hmm. with people. Um, you know, certain things, you know, people mix up dates and yeah. people mix up timeframes and, 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 and names of cities and things like that. So I had to check a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there is, there are parts of the story were kind of foggy, like they've been lost to trauma, to PTSD, they, like what might have happened here? Um, and then there were like parts of stories where 
you know, you kind of require to open up a little room for the other person's point of view, someone mm-hmm. who's not there to tell the rest of the story. So I really had to balance these things, do a lot of research, like um, fill in the gaps. And then there was a the question of like, to tell a story, the western way in a compelling way you do have to dramatize things so that what that means is put them in scene you mm-hmm. don't just tell it the, you know what I mean yes. you have to you have to set a, a sense of place a sense of time you know you have visceral details you transport the reader to that place and time you create dialogue and all of that stuff and so all of that has to be had to be absolutely accurate mm-hmm. but still imagined and invented in the way that you know journalists do when they put you in scene to you know yeah. I think that was one of the challenges is to stick to the truth yes. while while creating, creating narrative mm-hmm. I can imagine especially after 10 years of writing like listening to these stories you're like oh okay like I know how I'm gonna like connect this to this or you know write it up in this way so how did you kind of find that process of trying to figure out like how to weave into the these stories into your stories did you have like a pattern or was it just kind of like how it ended to be there was a natural structure to the to the mm-hmm. book which is I mean I, I there was a reason I divided this into the five parts that I divided it into it's a um I kind of thought of these as the five natural stages of displacement you know there's escape there's waiting there's asylum assimilation and then finally uh, a, a sort of cultural repatriation mm-hmm. and and the reason I pick these is because it felt like the complete arc there are parts of it that people don't really focus on they always just escape on, oh, focus on the escape and the asylum right mm-hmm. and they don't focus on all of those other parts and um but I I also chose them because I felt like for each of these categories there is a parallel in the lives of everyday non-displaced people mm-hmm. that will help them empathize with this so for example camp mm-hmm. um in the second chapter, which is about refugee camps, it's not just about camp, it's about the entire concept of waiting. Mm-hmm. And we have all been forced to wait for something on someone. We've all been, you know, made by someone in power to just like, you know, hold our horses yeah. and suffer through that. And I think that that really understanding w- what it feels like to be told to do that for two years or however long without knowing when it will end, I think that helps create empathy. You know, I saw so many people during the pandemic really start to empathize with refugees because they saw the parallel in having to be forced to lock down without knowing when the end is going to end. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was really a moment where people people started to empathize with that situation. So for each of these sections, I what I want to do is draw the attention of the native born reader to the part of their life, the thing they've experienced that is parallel to this. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so once I had created that structure, I mean, your question was, how did you weave it with your own story? Well, my story had these five parts. Yes. So that's the answer to that. That's so, yeah, that's so cool because even on these cases where like my life may not look like any of the people in your book, like I obviously still found myself, you know, going, not going through them, but like feeling those feelings and like connecting to the things that I could understand from my own narrative into their narrative. So I'm really glad that you did that. All right. So, um, for last question on the ungrateful refugee and then we'll kind of get into your playwriting and what you're doing now um but so why did you title it the ungrateful refugee oh wow okay so (laughs) that that, I get that question all the time um but and you know well I'm glad I mean I titled it that so people would ask (laughs) but I you know I was doing actually a 
it's a big event a couple of nights ago with a couple of other writers for um, a charity. It's called Room to Read. It, it's, it's a, it was doing kind of an anthology that we all put together called The Gifts of Reading. But anyway, we're doing this event. Mm-hmm. And um, the person who was interviewing all of us said, you know, I resisted reading your book for so long just because of that title. And I was like, oh, God, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and you know, but it is true. It's a provocative title. And yeah. but the reason I chose it is because this is a phrase that we do here. And I'm, I've heard this phrase a lot. You hear the phrase ungrateful refugee. And often it's in, in, in terrible contexts of people, mm-hmm. you know, um, disparaging refugees or wanting to throw them out or being like xenophobic. But the thing I guess I wanted to draw your attention to is why is it, why is this phrase a thing? And why isn't there a phrase like, I don't know, the ungrateful expat or, you know, the ungrateful native born person or the, the reason, the reason is because people expect gratitude from a refugee and people don't just expect them to be grateful privately. They expect them to posture their gratitude for the benefit of the native born right and that is a key difference so when you ask me am I an ungrateful refugee absolutely not Mm -hmm. I wake up every day grateful for everything I have and every refugee that I know wakes up every day grateful for for what they have but that is a private emotion and it is Mm -hmm. is, and it is something that's good like if you ask me oh will you don't you think gratitude is a good thing of course it's but it's for our mental health Uh our you know, spiritual growth and our relationship with whoever we're grateful to, you know, whether it be a community, an institution, a higher power, what mm-hmm. have you. It's not to posture for people who have already been lucky, mm-hmm. you know, who yes. should be even more grateful for having been born into, you know, a lucky country. Because yes. remember, just, just because you're born into something doesn't mean you earned that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why should an American education and American, um, you know, passport and all the things that go with it, I guess, why should a, a native born American person deserve that more than someone who was born elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. That is one of the great privileges of the world. And I don't think that an accident of birth should determine it. So mm-hmm. when you ask me who should be grateful, I'd say, well, anyone, yes. I guess, <laughs> lives in America now, whether they got there through migration or through birth, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, so so the, the, the term ungrateful refugee does not make sense to me. I, I find it abhorrent and I, I, I find it something worthy of calling out yes. because it has assumptions underneath it that are absolutely terrible and illogical. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what I wanted to call out with that. And I wanted to point out that this gratitude theater that is expected of you know, refugees is an ugly thing and it robs them of dignity and it robs them of their sense of self. And unfortunately, it's so deeply psychological. A lot of the refugees that I meet are, they feel compelled to perform it because, yes. you know, they are grateful and they don't know what to do with that. And they feel such a shame at having had to arrive in this way. You know, that shame compels them to behave in a way that isn't, you know, it takes away their dignity and makes them feel less. I think that's so, and honestly, you explaining that makes so much sense too. Now you are getting into playwriting. Can you <laughs> tell me how you made that shift or how it's going for you or what made you kind of decide to get into that? How did you find out about this? Oh, I do my research. <laughs> but what happened was I, at the beginning of the pandemic, had this story that I wanted to write and I like was toying with other forms already. And, you know, I, I've skipped around between different forms and I've written in different ways, but I was, I was reading a book about um, playwriting, which kind of had a, 
don't remember what it was, but I, a lot of playwriting books talk about this, about how, you know, each story has its own perfect medium. I mean, some stories are made for, for film. Some mm -hmm. stories are really great on the page in a novel and a short story, and some are really great for the stage. And I realized that the story I was writing was really best for the stage, you mm -hmm. know? And so, and I was so interested also in writing pure drama, you know, in the, the, the kind of original dramatic form uh, for, for like just between characters, all yeah. of that human complexity on the stage and live without commentary, without all of the internal dialogue and all mm -hmm. the tricks that we have that we can use in in prose, I thought, well, you know, this is a great challenge and it's it's going to be so much fun. And I had this story that is very much, um, you know, kind of set in a post-pandemic world and it's a great moral dilemma and it's about race and class and, and, and displacement. But at the same time, it's about money and art um, mm -hmm. and how like money flows to artists and all of that stuff. And I think it's very juicy and very timely. Yeah. So we shall see what happens. I am now putting together kind of everything for it. So we'll see. Wow, that's so fun. I love that you are able to just kind of play around with all these different genres because that's so, I mean, they all have like, you know, the same kind of underlying um, elements, just different ways of kind of exactly. blowing like, them up. How different is it telling a story in a playwriting context from a like fiction context from a non-fiction context? Like, are, are they super different or do you kind of follow the same methods to create your stories for playwriting? on the macro level the process is similar you write something you show it to someone you, well first of all you know you write something you edit it 10 times then you show it to someone then you edit it again then you show it to someone else and then by the time you're on draft 20 maybe you have something <laughs> remotely worthy of like public consumption but even that you know um and I think that uh, what I learned is again same thing I learned every time I try a new genre is that my instincts are often wrong and the things <laughs> I've learned in the other genre are are often not great for this one and there's mistakes that people make when they cross over and that I should really use the expertise of the people who know and so I was one thing I feel like I am good at doing is is kind of finding people that are on the inside of that particular genre and mm -hmm. getting some help and asking for help and getting in you know using their expertise you know when they believe in the story to make the story better so I did I did that and, and that was a process that's very similar to how I do all of my writing um, but at the same time like the specific writing of it I think you know there's a lot more kind of free flow and like in, in in prose because I'm used to prose and I know already that like say when I'm putting together a sentence in a creative nonfiction piece there's not going to be a lot of problem with the sentence do you know what I mean I know how to write sentences yes. now <laughs> you know and I, I might have to shuffle things around but there's also kind of a natural um storytelling arc that I have kind of swallowed yes. <laughs> which I, I but but all of that stuff it had to kind of be rethought in the new mm -hmm. genre so when I was thinking about writing plays when I started I had to remind myself okay so yes there is an arc you know mm -hmm. to this so by this page I need to kind of finish up setting up the conflict okay. and by this page I need to bring in a new conflict and that kind of stuff yeah and that, that was kind of a stepping back and relearning the art of storytelling which I found immensely enjoyable yeah <laughs> um and then and then and then there was the usual process of learning from your mistakes. Yeah, I think whenever you're like into something and you kind of switch genres or switch, you know, how you do them, you relearn those processes that you kind of like exactly. originally learned. And then you kind of get to like fall in love with it again. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's one of the joys of switching. Yeah. Okay. So I have two last questions for you. So sure. first is, okay, 
what are you loud about? Because I've, we kind of talked about it through here, yeah. but we're loud mouth. So what is something that you are loud about till, till death? You're going to be loud okay. about it. <laughs> well, two things. One, I am very loud about any kind of different standards put on people based on the accident of birth, anything that they're born dif- you know, with that is different from kind of the person who gets all of the privilege yes. that makes me mad. So, um, so alongside of that, um, the thing that I'm most loud about is when women are disbelieved proportionally differently from men, when women are questioned in professional settings differently from men, mm-hmm. when women have to prove themselves more, show more evidence, you know, be more buttoned up, uh, you know, show later draft, anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, when women are told that they are too loud, uh, you know, about my pet peeve. <laughs> exactly. When uh, you know a man saying those same things would be called smart and and assertive and 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 um, insightful. I mm-hmm. guess. Yes. And and a woman is just like okay. Oh, she's so extra. Yeah, she's extra. Yes. So extra. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of stuff, I I pretty much call it out, even when I see it very very subtly. And I think this mm-hmm. is one of the beauties of of being about forty. You know, because when I was twenty, I would stew. Yes. I would stew in private, and I would be like, you know, gosh, he said that in that way because whatever. But now yeah. I just be like, you You're know, like, why you said it that way? Yeah, like, I- like that was some subtext. Yes, <laughs> you know, and I know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that is really very very annoying but I never regret having said it mm-hmm. you know? it always feels it always feels better when you get it off your chest in that moment because you're like now I can literally watch your face <laughs> I love, yeah yeah <laughs> but I love that okay so then my final little question what is something yeah. that you want people to know about the refugee experience or what is something that you want people to learn from you and your books and the like you're speaking and everything like that I want them to really internalize this idea that if they were, um, you know, it, it's actually something like um, it's it's from it's called uh, what is it the Rawlsian original position. It's from a philosopher called John Rawls, an American philosopher, who asked you to kind of do this thought exercise called the original position, where you imagine if you weren't born yet and if you didn't have a body yet. Right. And you had to decide what kind of a social structure, what kind of world, like economically, socially, all of all of it, what kind of world and what kind of systems you wanted to create. How would you create that world? Well, you would look around and see that most of the world is poor and most of the world are workers and most of the world are X, Y and Z. And you would try to make the world as good as possible for the least possible. And the reason is because you would be afraid that you'd be born into that body, right? Mm-hmm. It's very, very likely you would be, I don't know, a, a, a farmer in China or Russia or, you know, mm-hmm. and or you would be a single mother or you would be any of these things that would make you vulnerable. So you want to make the world fair for mm-hmm. those people. Yes. So I want people to internalize the idea that, you know, we are not are what we are entitled to is not decided or should not be decided by the accident of birth Mm -hmm. that we need to create a world in which the most suffering and the most vulnerable have a shot at a decent life um that we are um that there are things that we owe to our fellow man even if people we don't know 
you know, and, and that, that every day we partake in privileges that were taken from other people over the course of history, right? So I want them to really kind of think big picture about these things. I think a lot of people, when they think about the refugee issues, they think, okay, current economics, current numbers, borders, et cetera. No, let's, let's, let's step back. Let's look at this historically and philosophically and, and think about what kind of society we want, because nothing is decided forever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I would also want people to understand that, like, this idea that refugees and migrants are taking anything from them is propaganda created by fear mongering people who just want to protect their own entitlements. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like, every, refugees are not born to be refugees. These are, you know, craftsmen and doctors and engineers and chefs and children and, you know, parents and good people from the rest of the world who mm-hmm. had something awful happen. Mm-hmm. Now they need to leave everything they love behind and, and make a new home, right? Yeah. And if you think of them on an individual level, you'll see that there's so much, so much that each one of them can do to enrich your life and your community. So mm-hmm. let's put aside this fearfulness yeah. and think about how we can be welcoming, how we can give welcome, how we can give of the rescuer and try to like give charity and help with dignity and how, you know, we can just help them give back to us, like take advantage of all of the talents that they bring Mm -hmm. and make our own community better. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. And like, look at them as people. Cause yeah, it gets over pushed with like the economic talk, the policy talk, everything like that. But these are just people that are looking for somewhere safe to be. And aren't we all just looking for that? Like, right. And in, and in, and in the, in the short term, they may be refugees or displaced, but that's not their identity in the long run. And I mean, in the long run, they are you know, just so much more than that. It's good to try to discover that in the people that we meet. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Okay. So just give yourself a little plug, um, tell where people can find you and find your books and everything like that. Okay. Um, well, I have a website, dinanayeri.com and I can be found on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. But here's the thing. I haven't been on social media for a couple of years. I'm taking a break because I feel that it's better for my mental health. Understand. Yes. But you can always find updated things on my website and my book. I have a book for children coming out in the spring um, and it's, it's called The Waiting Place. It's by Candlewick Press and it's a story. It's um the story of real children in a refugee camp with real photographs and i have another nonfiction book coming out next year and so yeah look out for future busy yeah for stories and plays and check out my work well thank you so much tina for being here and doing this with me i appreciate you so much thank you thank you for having me have so much fun moving good luck (laughs) bye bye all righty you guys it's use the microphone issues here. I have already uploaded this podcast as I'm recording this, but my beautiful friend Tolly, who has been on the podcast before, um, told me that my editing was wrong and I accidentally put the beginning clip again at the end. So here's my final closing out. Um, I hope that you guys are all enjoyed this episode with Dina. I hope you go check out her books. I will have them linked in the show notes for you. I highly recommend The Ungrateful Refugee. The rest of her books are on my reading list for 2022. Oh my gosh, get the year right, Madison. Um, So make sure to check her out down below. You can follow her there. You can also follow me on Instagram, everything like that. And check out my new and latest 
beautiful site, uh, my website. It's my little baby right now. Look forward to hopefully a blog post every week and just some more content on there. So check out everything down below. I love you guys. Sorry for the makeshift um, recording we got going on right now, but it's okay. I hope you guys had have a good rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you all later. Bye.